Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci. And of all the book sales strategies, word of mouth is still the most reliable and the most powerful way for a book to build momentum and become a massive bestseller. So today, I've invited an expert who is going to share with us some powerful strategies you can use to get people talking about you, your brand, and what you offer, including your book. I'm happy to introduce to you Michael Roderick, who is the CEO of Small Pond Enterprises, which helps thoughtful givers become thought leaders by making their brands referable, their messaging memorable, and their ideas unforgettable. His frameworks have been featured in Forbes, Business Insider, and popular podcasts like The Art of Charm and Unmistakable Creative. Michael is also the host of the podcast Access to Anyone, which shows how you can get to know anyone you want to in business and in life using the latest technology as well as time-tested principles. Michael is also a published playwright and the author of The Last Hour of the Day, a workbook built off of a tweet campaign where he challenged his followers to do something at the last hour of their day and reflect on their experiences. In this episode, you will find surprising strategies on how to create a referable brand, including how a referable brand raises the status of the one doing the referring which rooms to show up to if you want to get noticed and stand out among the crowd, and how to get people talking about you, saying good things, when you're not in the room. So loads of value here for you, and I hope you enjoy. So Michael, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have you. And I know when we were chatting over dinner recently, we were talking about some of the, first of all, you have a, such an amazing, interesting background and how it led up to your developing some of these incredibly powerful ideas around creating a referable brand. So I wondered if you would be willing to share with our readers, at least a Reader's Digest version of <laughs> path to this awareness? Because I think it's very interesting. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. So uh, Reader's Digest version is a really good uh, <laughs> way to sort of think about it, because uh, I've probably lived about 17 different lives at this point. And so I started out as a high school English teacher, and I went from being a high school English teacher to becoming a Broadway producer in under two years. So there was a lot of curiosity around that. I had a lot of people asking me sort of how I had moved so quickly. And at the time, I was getting my master's in educational theater at NYU. 
And one of the things that I had learned about was if you do simulations, if you have people act out scenarios, in many cases, they act out exactly how they normally would in real life. So I started to host these workshops where I would simulate one-on-one meetings, job interviews, and cocktail parties. And I noticed a lot of patterns in terms of how these people interacted. And based on those patterns, I started to develop all of these relationship building frameworks. And I started to teach those. And next thing I knew, people were introducing me to people. They were inviting me to speak about things. They were having me on podcasts. Like All these things were happening when I would share these frameworks and when I started to teach all of this stuff. So I became really well known in that whole connector space. I started a podcast that I still run called Access to Anyone, where we talked about relationship building and sort of like, what are the best ways to do that and everything. And then probably about, I want to say like four or five years back, I noticed that the relationship building space was becoming very sketchy. And there were just a lot of people trying to sell people on this idea that they could teach you how to meet famous people and meeting famous people was your key to being rich. And I didn't didn't want want to be associated with that market. I just like didn't want to be seen as, oh, this is just another guy who's going to be teaching networking. So I took a moment and I basically asked myself, okay, if I took networking out of the equation, if I said, okay, let's get rid of all of the teachings, all of the different things that are out there, What still got me into all of the rooms that I got into? And I realized it was because people would talk about me when I wasn't in the room in a good way. (laughs) So I started to say like, okay, well, I wonder if there is something to this. And I was doing one of my workshops and I decided to take about 15 minutes on a theory that I had. And I basically said to this group, I said, I have a theory that if you're able to create a referable brand for yourself, if you're able to make it so that other people are talking about your ideas when you're not there, then there is a very good chance that you will not need to do a lot of the traditional sort of outreach networking stuff that everybody has to go through because people will basically want to introduce you to other people. They'll basically want to show you off to their friends. And I got to the end of this workshop Mind you, I taught two days of some of my best stuff. And when I asked everybody, what do you want your hot seats to be on? Every single person wanted their hot seat to be on creating a referable brand. So I basically said, okay, (laughs) this is what people want, right? This is where it sort of lands. So I said, okay, why not go back to my framework building process and develop frameworks around referability And that's really what led me to the work that I do today. That's so awesome. And I really want to highlight for our listeners that this is so key to author success in so many ways. And one of the first that occurs to me is that regardless of what the trends are and that come and go as it relates to how to sell more books, the one that everyone knows works every time is someone referring your book to a friend that trusts them, right? So that word of mouth is the best way to sell books. And so creating a referable brand with your book is actually a huge piece. Yeah. And key to success. 
Yeah. And it's one of those things that it is so easy for us to get into this place of thinking we've got to use all of the tactics and like, I've got to do this on social media. I've got to use these ads. I've got to do like all of the things when really, if we just focus on, well, why would anybody else talk about this? we can really just get past a lot of that stuff. We can still use those tools and those tools are very, very effective, but we're not going to feel like we're sort of just throwing things at the wall and -hmm. trying to see what sticks, which I think is what happens a lot when we're saying, how do I get my idea out there? I think that's one of the biggest questions that people ask is how do I get my idea out there? And the biggest thing that you always need to think about is how do I make sure that my idea makes other people look good, makes other people look interesting. So they want to share it. They're excited to share it because they look cool. They look interesting. And it's just so often and so funny because it ties exactly into all the relationship building principles. If you want to build great relationships, you think about what does the other person want? What is the other person looking for? So as the writer, you want to think, how does this idea make somebody else look great? How does this idea make somebody else look like they've got new ideas and new concepts? And that's why they're going to share it. So give us an example of like a time that you've seen this work really well, either for yourself or any of your clients or anybody that you've taught. I just think it'd be great a little example. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of instances in which this happens where people start talking about a particular, you know, a particular concept, but I teach a class for people who are interested in writing specifically. And I've written a daily email for a very long time. And people always ask me sort of, how do you a write daily and then write in such a way that people read it and sort of follow the stuff. So I was doing this class And I was talking about this aspect of, I call it an anchor, where basically if you want people to understand your concept, you've got to give them some kind of anchor in what they already know, what they already recognize. So we had this discussion and we started talking about this idea and we got into this aspect of personal experience and how personal experience sort of bonds us to other people. And one of the women in the group who works with women business owners, she told us this story about how her mother used to always eat the broken cookies. And the reason was she wanted to make sure that the kids got the full cookies, right? That they got everything else, (laughs) right? And then she basically started talking it through. and, And as we were talking, it was like, well, this really does apply to how a woman business owner thinks about their value and all of these different types of things. So if you are teaching them about value-based pricing and like all of these different types of things, this concept could be the anchor. So she went out there and started talking about the broken cookie effect. And next thing she knew, she was getting lots of people who are reaching out to her and asking her about it and wanting her to speak about it. Because she took this thing that for many people is often amorphous and it's just like, well, what is business growth really? And like, how do we think about our finances and all these things? And she brought it down to this very, very simple concept. And it really just has taken off and she's been doing all sorts of really cool things with it. 
Yeah. And that makes sense because it's connecting to something that her ideal reader slash client, right. Is very familiar with uh, some of those behavioral tendencies that we maternally oriented women tend to have yep. and giving that vivid metaphor yep. that is so easy to wrap your head around yeah. and grasp. Awesome. So tell us a little bit more about, it's so funny because I remember the first time you said getting people to talk about you when you're not in the room, this is generally something people try to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, what are some of the characteristics of a brand that would trigger that kind of a reaction? So obviously connecting to something that the audience or listener is already sort of hip to. Yes. What are some other of the characteristics that would make somebody talk about you in a good way behind your back? Yeah. So, I mean, the first one is this aspect of accessibility, right? So this aspect of one of the things that we often forget is that we share things because we feel competent enough to share them, right? Like we feel like we can explain it clearly. So we're not worried about how we're going to look when we explain it. But if something kind of we don't quite understand it, or we feel kind of like back and forth about it, we're actually less likely to share it, even if it's better than something else, right? Because for us, we don't want to look like we don't know what we're talking about. So the mistake that I often see is that we forget about that aspect of making sure that if somebody were to carry this idea and share it with somebody else, they're not going to be stumbling all over it and trying to figure out, well, how many steps is it? And what's the process? And like all of these different types of things. And that I think is probably the biggest mistake that I see that's made at the very, very beginning. If you want to think about this as like a hurdle, accessibility is always your first hurdle because Mm -hmm. you are always, 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 always too close to your idea. Yes. Every single one of us, it does not matter how like, I myself, right, need people outside of my circle to look at what I'm saying and say, Mike, I know that you'd get it, but man, I have no idea like what you're talking about, right? And like we all need that. Yeah. And that is such a big deal with authors, right? Because the people that we work with are legitimate, like high level experts in their field. And they're generally used to talking to their peers. Yeah. So there's this peer-to-peer communication where we all know what we're talking about and we all understand the background of this very specific point of molecular biology (laughs) or whatever it might be, right? And then we're trying to translate that to a mass market message. And so if you're going to set your reader loose, (laughs) you're going to excitedly want to share about what they've read how do you make it simple enough that they could not only share it reasonably accurately, but I think what you're describing is and get someone else excited about it. Yes, exactly. And the trick there is this aspect of when you share it, it's useful, 
right? It's something that you're basically like, oh, okay, yeah, I could use this in my own life, right? This will make me look better if I use this or if I explain this to other people, right? We first got to figure out, okay, well, how do I make sure that people access it? Like they understand it, they sort of get it. But then the second part is, how do I make it so that they're going to want to share it? And that ties to this aspect of influence, right? And a lot of the time we think about influence in the context of persuasion. We think, how do I get somebody to do something? But we're not influential unless somebody does something without us asking them to, Uh, right? Wow. That's a great concept. That's so powerful. Yeah. Right. So then we have to think for ourselves. We say, okay, well, why would somebody share something of ours without us asking them to? Well, they would do it because it makes them look better. Uh It makes them look interesting. It helps them. It supports them. So we always want to think about, okay, well, how does my idea help somebody so much that then they go and they tell that idea to somebody else because they're like, I want to share this with you. I want to be able to help you. I call this the magic trick, right? So basically, if you've ever been to a party and you've seen a magician, magicians almost always have one trick that they're able to show you exactly how they did the trick. They'll show you, this is how I made the salt shaker go through the table, or this is how I made the card disappear behind my hand, whatever it is. And the thing that you're most naturally going to do is learn that trick. And next time you're at a party, you want to show people that trick, right? You want to show them that cool thing. So we come up with these magic tricks, right? We come up with these things that people can then use in front of other people. And then they're like, wow, that's so interesting. So one of the ones that I do and that gets shared all the time, and this got shared way back when I was still doing the relationship building stuff, is this concept, I call it the TCM index. So every individual, no matter who you meet, has an index of time, connections, and money. They care about those three things. They usually have one thing that they care about more at this moment in time than anything else. So for some people, they're very money focused. For some people, they're very (laughs) connection focused. And for some people, they're very time focused, right? So if you think about yourself and your own scenario, right? And you have a TCM index and you look at where your deficit is, the answer to solving your deficit is always in examining the other two things. So if you have a deficit in money, it is directly tied to who you're connecting to and how you're spending your time. If you have a deficit in connections, it's directly tied to where you're spending your time and how you're spending that money. Which rooms are you getting into as a result of that time and that investment? And if you have a deficit in your time, it is directly tied to are you hiring people and spending money so that whatever is taking you a really long time is taking somebody else five minutes and then you get your time back. So when I explain this, what happens? People go out and they mention this TCM concept to others, right? And they say, oh man, I never even thought about this, but yeah, I totally deal with that, right? And why does it work? It works because it's completely accessible. Every single one of us understands the idea of time, connections, and money. There's no ambiguity there, right? Like we totally get it. But then it's this useful thing that's going to help you figure out where you are and what you can do. And it's actionable, right? Like you can do something with it right now. So 
as a result, it's far more likely that you're going to share this because it's useful. It's going to make you look good and more people are going to talk about it and want to share that with their friends. Yeah, absolutely. And the simplicity and being easy to explain, but something else that strikes me about that particular magic trick that people share that's yours is also the relevancy, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. that is so likely to come up as a relevant point in a conversation in so many different kinds of conversations, right? Yes. Like I could imagine that in a conversation about home life, a conversation about work, a conversation about relationships, a conversation, you know, Yeah, it's it's interesting because that has a lot of different contexts that that could be a relevant thing to share. Yeah. And that's a major factor a lot of the time in sort of how large an idea ends up growing, right? So one of the things that is really important to understand is that if there's only one area where we sort of know the idea, sort of understand the idea, then it's really kind of limited to just that industry, right? And only that industry kind of knows it and maybe one or two sort of tangential industries will get it, right? But if an idea ends up in multiple industries, it actually has crossover into lots of different industries. What ends up happening is it actually takes up a different place in our minds because now we have different reference points for it. And one of the best ways to sort of see how this works in the world is look at stars in Hollywood, right? And one of my favorite examples is take Vin Diesel and we have Dwayne The Rock Johnson, right? And in essence, if we look at both of those actors on the surface, they're both action stars, right? That's sort of like where we sort of immediately kind of equate them. But Dwayne The Rock Johnson tends to get far more opportunities and we tend to hear about him way more than Vin Diesel. We hear about Vin Diesel usually in the acting world of action movies, and that's about it. And these days in some memes, right? But we don't hear about him in any other industry, right? Whereas The Rock seems to kind of be everywhere. So why is that? Well, The Rock is in all of these other industries. So in our brains, it's not just Dwayne The Rock Johnson, the action star. It's the wrestler. It's the voice of Maui from Moana. It's the cheesy children's comedies. It's an HBO series called Ballers. So there's all of these different reference points for our brain, right? So like we see him and we recognize Mm. him from all of these other places So we're actually far more likely to have him be the one that we recall and that we think about and sort of place at the top in terms of star than Vin Diesel, because Vin Diesel is only one category for us. And when we... One lane. Exactly. And when we create something that taps into multiple industries right? Multiple industries can use it. Multiple industries can adapt to it and think about it. Well, now when somebody sees that idea, they remember, oh, I didn't only see that at that conference. I also saw that on TV. I also heard about it on that podcast, all of these different channels. 
And the way that I like to think about it is Starbucks in New York, right? Starbucks in New York is the undisputed winner of the coffee game, regardless of all of the other coffee shops that are out there. And why are they the winner? They are the winner because they have the most real estate. Every street that you're on, there is a Starbucks somewhere, in some cases directly across from each other. So (laughs) when we think about our own ideas, we really want to think about how am I acquiring more than one piece of real estate? And most of us, Mm. especially because most of the marketing things that are taught are like, stay within this niche. The riches are in the niches and all of these different things, right? Yeah. You just yeah. expressed, I was feed you the traditional rebuttal to that, right? Which is yep. stay in your lane, be known for one thing. So you've just blown that up. So you're going to have to say more about this. Yes. Because yeah. so when I'm in New York, I have to make a concerted effort not to go to Starbucks because there's so many of them, yep. right? And no matter yep. what neighborhood you're in, And if you really want to support those local coffee shops, which probably do actually have better coffee, you actually have to focus on it. So if we took that metaphor, right, and expanded that to any brand, I mean, I think there's some parallels there as well, right? So yeah, yeah, just go a little deeper, help us buy into this idea because like somebody like me, I'm a little book coach, right? I mean, I don't do anything else. (laughs) Uh Yeah. (laughs) Well, except I sing. I write comedy and stuff. So are you saying that somebody should promote like lots of things that they do regardless of what their core business is, because that would make them more memorable? What I think and what I've seen has worked really, really well is a concept I refer to as go where you're awesome, not where you're ordinary. So yes, in your industry, everybody kind of knows of you and they know what you're about and they're going to measure you against the other people within that industry who are doing something similar. You go to an industry that has never heard of what you do and you're the most fascinating person in the room, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the thing is, we can niche and we can develop like, okay, this is where I want to be. But A big idea needs to have that ability. I call it being Prometheus, right? Like it needs to have that ability to go into another industry and have somebody say like, wow, could you do this for me? Can you help me with this idea or with this particular concept? And I have watched this happen numerous times where basically somebody struggles. I refer to it as the highway lane type problem. So like if there's multiple lanes on the highway and you are stuck behind one car, are you going to stay stuck behind that car? Are you just going to change lanes and cross around? We make this mistake in our careers all the time where basically we're like, okay, I'm in my lane, I'm doing my thing. And if you get stuck, you just keep pushing rather than saying, Is there another place where this thing is going to take off? And then I can always cross back into my other lane. Totally makes sense now that you're saying it that way, because I remember actually I had a very specific point in my business, right? Where I was 
having a challenge finding that right client to connect to. And I realized I was in the wrong lane mm-hmm. and that I needed to actually up-level who I was reaching out to. And I started putting myself in different rooms that were more exclusive, that were more. And I literally went from being seen as a regular book coach who just charged three times more. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. To, being in the room of people who could recognize the additional value that I was bringing. And so you're absolutely right. I'm not even marketing. I'm just being in the room. and Exactly. Exactly. And I just have these wonderful connections that form. Yeah. And the thing that we often forget about is that every industry has both an understanding ceiling as well as an income ceiling. And we forget mm-hmm. about this all the time. Right. Uh, I like Where, that. An understanding ceiling. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about what these are. This is interesting. Sure. So, an understanding ceiling is their grasp of what it is that you do. Right. So, you go into an industry that's completely outside of your circle. They don't know half of the terms that you use. So, the ceiling is very, very low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, you get to be the educator in that environment. Right. Whereas, yeah. In an environment where everybody already knows it, you don't really get to be the educator unless there's some other way that you're presenting in, unless you've got your own little angle on the things that everybody's talking about, right? So the thing is, the understanding ceiling in your industry is super, super high. So you're going to have to spend a lot of time figuring out how to be a better educator, right? In an industry where like everybody already kind of knows the lingo, right? Like they know everything. But you go to one with a lower understanding ceiling, you can literally name one thing that is common knowledge to everybody else in the other industry. <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, you're a genius. Mind blowing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So true. Yeah. yeah. And what you're also pointing out with your own example is the income ceiling aspect, right? Mm-hmm. So every industry has a decision that they make about what is the ceiling on the income that I'm going to spend for somebody who's going to provide a service for me. Mm-hmm. So if I go to the world of actors, writers, artists, let's just say, and I say, I'm going to charge $1,000 for something, that is brutal, right? Because yeah. the income ceiling there is usually like 100 bucks, 200 bucks, something like that, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah, I think I can squeeze that. Right. Right. But I take that same concept, that same service, whatever it is, and I go to somebody who runs a hedge fund and I say, (laughs) I can help you do this. And if you change the way that this thing is positioned or you change the way that your company is positioned, now you're going to make 10 times what you normally make. A hundred thousand dollars is not even a blink of the eye. Right. Right. I remember meeting a VC once who told me this story. This is one of my favorite stories about pricing. He told me the story about the two optometrists living in the same town. And one optometrist is basically like doing fantastic, making boatloads of money. And the other optometrist is dead broke. So the second one comes to the first and says, dude, I do not understand. I do the exact same thing that you do. How in the world is it possible that I am struggling this much? So the first one says, okay, I'm going to do you a favor and I'm going to tell you exactly how I make my money. Oh, please, please tell me. So he says, every time somebody comes into my office, I do the flinch test. 
was like, well, what's the flinch test? He says, well, if they come into the office and they say, how much for an eye exam? I say $200. If they flinch, I say, well, you know, for you, I could probably make it a hundred because you kind of live in the area. Maybe I can help you out. And then I help them out. Somebody comes in the office and they say, how much for an eye exam? And I say $200 and they don't flinch. I say for the left eye. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) All right. So aside from the unethical aspect of that, I get it. (laughs) Oh man. But you know, it's that same aspect of like the perception, right? And and like where somebody is and sort of how they think about it. And the other aspect that we often forget about is that when people are spending money, it is saying something about themselves, right? It is saying something to themselves. So we spend a lot on something because we want to feel like, okay, this is something I deserve. So I'm going to spend more money on it. And if that thing is not the amount of money that we're expecting to pay, we sometimes question whether or not it has a certain amount of value. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's true, too. I mean, there's definitely such a thing as underpricing your service. And I think that something else you said is really true as well, because I remember when I was and it's funny, I used to present at writers conferences and I Mm -hmm. was like, (laughs) I wasn't getting the people that were thinking bigger. Right. And I realized in order for somebody for it actually to be worth it to invest in working with someone like me. The person needed to have more at stake and they needed to have more like a bigger vision and they needed to be farther along in that vision for it to really even make sense. Yeah. So I think it's kind of cool in a way, if you look at, I love that idea. If you're like, you're willing to get out of the lane you're in and look for another lane, it could very well be trying to lead you towards the people that's actually more appropriate for you to serve based on your particular skill set. Right? Exactly. I was exactly overpriced, but I was also overskilled for what those other people needed. Yes. And that's the thing we sometimes forget is that yeah. every single person is actually on their journey and we fit somewhere in that journey. And sometimes they're not ready for us. Sometimes they need us long before they do something else. Right. And it's up to mm-hmm. us to figure out like, where do we fit? And does it really make sense? And going back to sort of the ethical aspect of the conversation, we have an ethical responsibility in the coaching space to basically look at where somebody is and decide, am I really the right fit for you for what you're trying to accomplish? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about someone who's not in the room nicely is my former business coach, David Nagel, Mm. who very wisely said as a sales conversation, sales is not something you do to someone. It's something you do for them. Mm. And that a big part of what he called his compassionate conversion model was it's not your job to make the sale. It's your job to help bring the person to a place of clarity. Yeah. Yeah. Which so includes important. whether or not this makes sense for them at this time. And I found that to be so helpful because it removed all of my programming about sales as slimy and snake oil. And it just takes all the pressure off because then you're just having a conversation 
one yep. person to another to figure out, does this make sense to do or not? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's such an important way to think about that process. So yeah, I think that's such a great, great point. Yeah. So I know you have more aspects to your model that we sure. haven't covered yet. So lead me, Michael, where do we go next? So to sure. really help our listeners get more of the picture of what this looks like. Yeah. So we've covered accessibility and we've talked about influence for a pretty good chunk of time, but what we haven't touched on is memory. And I think memory is one of the most important things for us to be thinking about and to be focused on because your stuff could be better than everybody else's stuff. But if somebody's able to remember somebody else's stuff faster, you lose. Right. <laughs> that's just ultimately what it comes down to, right? Like if we're at the store and we've got to make a decision super, super quick, we buy whatever we remembered. Like that's why brands hit a certain level because why I have become. a grocery list. Exactly. I invariably come home missing something. Right. Because I forgot. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And by the so, way, I just want to throw in before you continue. Yeah. This is also a key element of a best-selling book title is it has to be memorable. Yes. They have to be able to remember your title long enough to get to the store or to get online and buy it. So exactly. continue, please. Yeah. yeah. So the way that I like to think about memory is if you want people to remember you more, you focus on less. And that is language emotion, simplicity, and structure. So I'll start with language. If we have our own language for things, we are carving that piece of mental real estate. And we all know people in our lives who they use words that are new to us. And anytime we use those words, what do we do? We reference those words back, right? Like we start to talk about those words and one of the examples that I often use is Shakespeare. Everybody studies Shakespeare, knows Shakespeare. Shakespeare has a massive, massive brand. And when you look at one of the core reasons why so many of us know who Shakespeare is, it's because there are a ton of words in the dictionary today that were not there before Shakespeare. Shakespeare coined a whole bunch of new words, right? And as a result, people were running around using those words. But I read something today that you're the first to hear about. Like this is the first interview where I'm talking about this. I was fascinated by it. And it's another fantastic example of language. So Macbeth, is considered the Scottish play, the cursed play. There's like all of this stuff around the play Macbeth, right? And yeah. one of the questions that people ask is, why does this play feel so creepy in, <laughs> you know, in comparison to all of these other plays, right? There is no Shakespeare <laughs> play that you would be worried about reading with the lights off. Right. <laughs> right. Or you can't say out loud in the theater without cursing the whole production. And I mean, exactly. never mind a Shakespeare play. There's no other play, period. Right. Exactly. That but has you can't that. Say the name of when you're in a theater. Yes. There were 
data scientist who decided to study the words in Shakespearean plays and the frequency of those words. And what they discovered specifically about Macbeth was that the word the is used far more than most of the other Shakespearean plays. What? Just a little article? (laughs) Just a little article. But here's where it gets really freaky, (laughs) right? Like super, super freaky. So there's all sorts of different lines, but think about it was the owl that shrieked the fatal bellman of the night. Uh, think about the fact it wasn't an owl it was the owl and all of a sudden the owl is so much more ominous it's as if we knew it it's as if it was there so if you start to look at so many of the phrases and you start to look at the fact that the turns it into this like foreboding type of thing now we realize like well this is why we're so freaked out by it right and Uh, it's such a perfect example because people ask me all the time they're like well if i can't come up with my own words for things am i just stuck on this language thing no if you can't come up with your own words for things you can do this type of thing where you play around with like what if you just decided to take an article and turn it into the instead and see how does that change the language how's it changed and then people will think about it in that way right and when I was doing my daily writing, one of the things that was very, very popular was I would always refer to Facebook as the book of faces. And as, <laughs> as a result, like everybody's like commenting and talking about it and be like, that's so cool. I love that. And all I did was reverse the words, right? Mm-hmm. I know that we've got limited time, but I'm going to go through the rest of them so that you can hear what each one is. So the next is emotion and emotion solidifies memory. And it's proven biologically that we're in a heightened emotional state. We'll actually remember details more because our primitive brain needed to do that to make sure we didn't die when we would go past a tree and get attacked by something. We needed to know where that tree was. So when we're in a heightened state of emotion, (laughs) our brain becomes like a sponge. So if in our work, we cause a heightened sense of emotion people will remember all of the details after. And the example I always use that is the easiest for this is ask anybody what the opening scenes are of the film Titanic, nobody can tell you. But ask anybody what comes to mind, what image pops into their head when I say I'll never let go and everybody's there because they were experiencing that emotional moment in the film, Yeah. right? The next is simplicity. And this ties back to a lot of what we were talking about. Basically, academics always reward complexity. We're rewarded for the big words. We're rewarded for writing the big papers. We're rewarded for sounding complex. But the memory rewards simplicity because we can only handle so much. So going back to your grocery list example, you forget things on the grocery list, usually because there's too many things on the grocery list, right? Right. And it's just like, I know mm-hmm. that there's a bunch of the guys, so I'm going to write this list down. And then you're like, ah, you know, I forgot this because it's too much for your brain to carry, right? So the simpler right. we make something yeah. and we say, okay, here's the concept, right? The easier it's going to be to carry the idea, right? 
there's a reason why TCM is three letters and not 32. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and then the final piece. letter acronym would not be very useful. <laughs> exactly. And then the final piece of this is structure because our brains need structure in order to be able to process information. We don't read a book by starting in the middle and bouncing back and forth unless we're reading one of those choose your own adventures. Right. But like, ultimately we need to have a process to process that information. So if we give people a structure, yeah. then they know what comes next, right? I liked to it as the agenda effect when I taught high school. One of the best ways that I was able to get kids to do what they needed to do was to write an agenda on the board and be like, this is going to happen in five minutes. This is going to happen in 15 minutes, et cetera, et cetera. Your audience is the same way. If they feel mm -hmm. like they don't know what's coming next, they worry how much more time that they have to listen how much more time they have to read, right? But the second that you give them a structure, they know when they're at the end. Just like everybody listening knows that I have covered language, emotion, simplicity, and structure, right? They know that this is the end. They know that I have accessibility, influence, and memory, spell the word aim. And they know that the last piece is memory, which is language, emotion, simplicity, and structure. So you know that you're at the end. Right. And now you're checking your watch to see what can you do before the next thing. And right. I just want to throw in before we wrap up, this less model applies to book writing. Mm -hmm. Completely clear language, engaging the emotions, having simplicity, because I think the genius is really the one who can take a complex idea and make it sound simple. Yep. And yep. I know I just want to think of that. And then the structure is so vital to make sure the readers feel like you've got them, you're going to take them on a journey and you know where you're going and they're going to trust you to lead them there. So yeah, really terrific. So much we can apply to authorship. And I thank you so much, Michael, for your time today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really had an absolute blast. Wonderful. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.